Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 as we jump back in by way of review today to Galatians chapter 2. We last studied this towards middle of November, so I'll bring you up to date to where we are. And I want you to know that uh, I spend time and coordinate with the worship planning team. We especially select these songs to reflect on a theme for the day. In essence, as you go back and, and, and maybe recall or re-listen to this service, you will see that we just sang the context of the message in Galatians through all of our songs this morning. But we've been programmed in our culture here to not reflect necessarily on, on the words, but feel the emotion of the music that stirs our souls. There are some amazing phrases that you sang this morning that reflect the truth of Galatians chapter 2, and I just want you to connect the dots. We sang it, now we will speak it, I will remind you of it, but make no mistake about it, our hope is in Christ alone. And yet, here we are in the present culture on this high and most holy day. What are you talking about, Pastor Jim? Do you live under a rock? I'm talking about the Super Bowl, right? Isn't it amazing? Listen, isn't it amazing all the language today saying, oh, the Super Bowl is coming at a great time. We can party. We can all get together. We'll bring unity back to the country. And, and Rome is burning. What in the world are we doing? It reminds me of the bread and circuses during the collapse of Rome. Keep the people fed entertain them. They won't think about the problems. God forbid that you and I live under that rock. But we are not crushed by that rock because our hope is Christ. Connect, connect the dots. Our hope is Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, we read, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves by birth are not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, but because or by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ, then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For the law, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God forbid that Christ died for no purpose. Father, I pray that you bless us as we reflect back the things that we've learned thus far in our study in Galatians, and as we get into deeper and, and sometimes challenging phraseology in the text, I pray that we could focus on the clear understanding of Galatians throughout, and that we would understand that we are a blessed people who have a hope in Christ that will never fade and can never be taken away from us. And I pray that as we celebrate this grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone for your glory alone, that we would understand its implications in how we live out our Christian lives to to instruct our behavior, to keep us aware of, of why we do what we do, not turning back to other things and not turning ahead to to selfish whims and desires, but but solely focused on the finished work of Christ, our hope, where we stand, the very confidence of our salvation, regardless of what might happen in this world. So encourage us as we review, as we touch upon some things that we've we've talked about in the past and maybe some, some new things. I pray that you'd give clarity of thought and insight for the day in which we live and may it all before your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I also want you to know that as we look at this text this morning, there's some very interesting language in the text that speaks directly to this big evangelical kerfuffle today over the topic, can a Christian or should a Christian attend a gay or a transsexual wedding ceremony? We're going to continue after the worship service in the chapel addressing that matter. I want to encourage you, we put more seats in so you don't have to feel so tight and, and squished in there. This is really important information, and I entitled that, that Sunday school uh, section, The Sexual Revelation, or, or Revolution is, is Coming for You. Every one of you will eventually have to tackle this question in a biblical kind of fashion, and right now, there's chaos and confusion as to the answer to that question, and I will show you clearly there is no such thing. And even the text will touch upon it. So if you'd like, you can join us in that ABF in the chapel after this morning. As we look at the book of Galatians, Paul is writing it as, as an apostle. He was appointed by God as a spokesman and appointed by God as a messenger of this gospel through Jesus Christ and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through grace and peace that comes from the Father through Christ, having delivered us from the present age and whom all glory will be, verse 4 of chapter 1, forever and forever. And to encapsulate that, Paul's gospel is a simple gospel. It is a gospel in the finished work of Christ alone? Is it a gospel that comes to us solely by grace, not by works of righteousness, God's unmerited favor giving us this gospel, rescuing our souls, granting us forgiveness of sins, and that is by genuine faith in Christ alone, 
through grace alone, by faith alone, and all of that resounds to the glory of God. That's how Paul begins this letter and, and where we looked at it. And we saw that, that story of, of Paul's life in, in the book of Acts, and we're not going to go through and reflect upon that, but his miraculous salvation encapsulates and, and in fact, is a word picture of this gospel in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Christ appearing to him on that road to Damascus, calling him out for his sin, God finding Paul, Paul not searching for Christ, but Christ finding Paul and delivering him by faith to this glorious gospel, and then entrusting Paul to take that message of the gospel to the world. But a problem has arisen in the churches of Galatia, and there seems to be an abbreviated or a truncated or an absolutely changed gospel message challenging Paul's message. And his reaction is, I'm astounded, I'm astounded at those of you who are called in the grace of Christ that you're turning to a different gospel. That gospel was a gospel of works. That gospel was a gospel that said, you have to do something in order to receive this grace of God. And Paul is going to address that. He calls that kind of gospel another gospel, a cursed gospel. And then Paul says clearly that he received from God directly a revelation that the gospel that he'd gotten was directly from God. If you recall, he heard the audible voice of God confronting him and compelling him by faith to accept this gospel. And from that point in time, he went into a wilderness area for, for some years. He, he then visited Jerusalem with, with Peter in particular, only saw Peter. Uh, Fourteen years after that, he finds himself, chapter 2, back in Jerusalem to address this necessity of the gospel. Now, what Paul is doing is he's defending his gospel as from Christ alone. He's, a, he's defending his apostleship, saying, my apostleship is not dependent on what Peter and James says. I was commissioned by God. And he's defending himself against the charge that it is Paul who perverted the gospel, and it's the Paul that is making this mistake. So as he goes to Jerusalem to address all of these, we are introduced to a group of individuals that we call often the Judaizers. Now, these Judaizers were those who are described for us in chapter 2, verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that it might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Well, what did they secretly bring in? They secretly brought in, if we were to reflect on the book of Acts and, and even later in the, in the book of Galatians, that it's not enough that Christ died. It's not enough that salvation is in grace alone. It's not enough to just have faith. You have to add to your faith works in order to be justified. That is not the gospel that Paul preached. And they have flipped this on its head. They have gone against this revelation. We will find they've gone against the apostles and, and these pillars of the church as well. And Paul writes a very strong letter 
to confront this reality and to bring back this notion that there is one truth. Verse 7 of chapter 2, so these apostles in this gathering Jerusalem saw, they heard and saw that Paul had been trusted to the gospel to the uncircumcised, the gospel to the Gentiles, the same gospel that was the gospel to the Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And when James and Peter and John, the pillars, appointed pillars of that church, perceived pillars of that church, perceived the grace that was given me when they realized we were preaching the same gospel and I received it by God Himself, they gave the right hand of fellowship. That's a huge social confirmation. We are in this together, Paul. We are preaching the same gospel. We are standing in the same place. We affirm your gospel. We affirm your apostleship. We affirm that you are right in spite of these attacks against you. Verse 11. They get this all cleared up, and then something happens in Jerusalem. The timing is suspect. Some people put it at various places. But after the agreement in the gospel, Cephas came to Antioch, and Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter travels to Antioch, and Paul is there. The church at Antioch is, is a church mixed with Jews and, and, and Gentiles. And Peter, as he, as he comes into this church at Antioch, does something that causes Paul to oppose him to his face and acknowledge that he is self-condemned, for he is casting a shadow of doubt on this gospel of grace in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. He says in description, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter after confirming this gospel, his behavior seems to question the gospel. So he was sitting down with Gentiles in spite of the fact that he was a Jew, and there were all kinds of dietary laws. He is sitting down with the Gentiles outside of those dietary laws and fellowshipping with them, recognizing that these Gentiles have received the same gospel of genuine faith. But then this party of the circumcision comes in, and Peter's afraid that they're going to judge him for sitting with Gentiles and not observing the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws and even the laws of, of ceremonial cleansing. So Peter separates himself when these people come into town looking almost as if these Gentiles were secondary believers to the circumcised Christians of, of, of James's ilk. Peter also set the tone as a pillar of the church that many of those who were with him acted hypocritically, separating themselves as well from these Gentiles because they weren't observing the Old Testament law when in fact their standing in Christ was equal 
because it is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. His behavior was undermining the truth of the gospel. And their behavior, he says, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In fact, the truth of the gospel would say both of these saved Gentiles and saved Jews in Antioch could eat together outside of the law under the grace of Christ and celebrate the fact that Christ had done great things in their midst, and all of them are promised the eternal glory of God forever and ever in Christ alone. But his behavior seems to cast that now all into doubt, and what he says in verse 11 matters. I opposed him to his face as a leader who did this openly. Paul had no choice but to say, Peter, what are you doing? You've done this in front of all of these people. You've confused the message of the gospel. I'm telling you that you're wrong, and you're living hypocritically and contrary to this gospel that you say, we believe, that you affirmed by the right hand of fellowship, etc. Was Peter not a believer? Of course he was, but he was making a terrible mistake and living out his faith in front of both Jew and Gentile believer. And Paul's saying, you're bringing chaos and confusion to the matter. Peter, if you, though a Jew by birth, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, if you who were given the law no longer live by the law because of the grace that is in Christ Jesus, why are you now trying to force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Particularly, why are you telling them or implying that they need to be circumcised to be first-level Christians? Right now, they take a back seat. You're, you're kind of second-level because you've not been circumcised. Paul, this, or Peter, this is, this is hypocritical. Why are, why are you doing this? It's just confusing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 15, we ourselves, Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Ethnically, we are Jews by nature, and the law was given to us. This heritage and culture of God's people was given to us. The Gentiles were sinner by nature because they had no such law. Peter, as, as, as Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, that, that, that's a reality. Yet, we know that a person is not justified, justified means declared righteous by works of the law, but through, and we could include only, only through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus outside of that law, Peter. We, he's talking about their common ground, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one is justified. So, Peter, why are you doing what you're doing? It is bringing chaos and confusion to the matter. Romans tells us we now know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth might be stopped. Every person who understands God's holy and righteous standard has no grounds for claiming any righteousness before God, and the whole world will be held 
accountable to God for that unrighteousness, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God just tells you how far short you fall of the glory of God. Spells it out and all of its ugly detail. And Paul is saying, listen, if that is the reality, and we know that's a reality, and it's by Christ alone and grace alone and faith alone and not the works, why are you trying to push off on these Gentile Christians that they must perform their minimal, the work of circumcision, and then maybe even adhere to these Jewish dietary laws. He says, this makes no sense. It's just breeding chaos and confusion. And in Antioch, there was a, a real danger of division splitting that church. From the beginning of the church, Satan has been working the angles and driving a wedge between true truth and truisms, true food, truth and, and, and false truth. And he is still in the business of doing that today. So we must take our attention back to that gospel in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, spelled out and articulated clearly in the Scripture, through Scripture alone, and remember that it is all for His glory. And if this is the way God has chosen to do it, you have no right to come up with another way. God has spoken, and you are saved in Christ alone, and that is the grounding for your faith. What a glorious gospel. Paul is dealing with this this conflict or this problem but why fifteen seventeen the beginning of the Reformation Martin Luther nailed his ninety five thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle in Germany to begin a discussion on this gospel of Jesus Christ and take a stand different than the Roman church had taken, trying to take the church back to the gospel that is grounded in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Interestingly enough, there was pushback from the church of Rome, and the church of Rome was charging Martin Luther of saying that, that you had no responsibility whatsoever to God, and he was letting, letting people off the hook to live their life any way they wanted to live if there's no demand for righteous works. And as we move through all of this process, that is a, a misunderstanding of justification by faith in Christ alone. And Luther doubled down and said that justification through Christ and grace and faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. The number one argument in salvation is this, either God did it or He didn't through Jesus Christ. That is the issue. And then he will deal with some of those add-ons and takeaways from that gospel but even today, we face those kinds of challenges as we confuse the message of the gospel and begin to sometimes deconstruct and reconstruct that gospel, sometimes not even wittingly, 
The truth of the matter is the battle in the Reformation, and everybody listen carefully because this is the salient issue even today and some of the things that I will address. The church at Rome, now what we know to be the Roman Catholic Church, it's evolved into that. The church at Rome did not deny that faith was a sufficient cause for salvation. They believed that faith was sufficient for salvation. The problem between Luther and his Reformation and a return to Scripture and the Roman church at the time was this. Was it faith alone or faith plus works? Follow me? That was the issue. Martin Luther, at a return to Scripture, says it's faith alone. We can't add to those works because it changes the gospel. And Paul says that's anathema. That's an accursed gospel. At the same time, Martin Luther was not saying in any sense that after faith in Christ, you can do whatever you want, and there are no rules. He wasn't saying that. So that was part of this dance that was being done in that Reformation that, that, that is being done even so much earlier than that in this book of, of Galatians, adding circumcision in the law back into the gospel when that's not the gospel that was delivered to Paul. So as we look at that, we understand this, and it's just a reminder, justification is that aspect of application of redemption in which God legally declares the sinner to be righteous in His sight. How does God do that? If you remember that process of of imputation, Jesus Christ takes our sins on Him. He pays the penalty. He takes His righteousness as the perfect observer of the law, and He puts it upon us. Justification is a legal verdict by God through Jesus Christ where God looks at you in your sinfulness and He sees the righteousness of Christ. That is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. You don't add one single thing to that. It is a gospel in Christ alone. Luther would go on to describe this justification as a justitia alienum. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not my righteousness. I couldn't achieve that righteousness by the law. The law just tells me that I couldn't keep any of it. And James says, if you violate one aspect of the law, you're guilty of the whole law and condemnation. Paul says, that that can't happen. So Luther's point was simply this to the church at Rome. We are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. And I'm telling you that that's the same issue being addressed today in so many ways, and the same confusion lies in so many ways, and that is why we have to get the gospel right. Do you add anything to faith to be justified by God? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Follow me? Does that mean that when you come to faith in God, There are no moral rules. 
There are no spiritual principles that you need to abide by, that you are living under a free grace and you can do whatever you want because it's a free grace and there's no such thing as any kinds of laws or regulation. So whatever the way I live my life is irrelevant to you, I have freedom in Christ. How many times have we heard that excuse for Christian behavior? That is, again, an abomination and perversion of the gospel. It was one of the very things that this incident between Peter and these Judaizers brings out in the early chapters of that text. Beginning with the church in Rome and the Reformers through the centuries, there are these twin dangers of legalism, what we would call antinomianism. We'll cover this a little bit later in the text, but it's important that we introduce this because it fits the context here. Legalism is a term that Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving salvation and spiritual growth. Now, that's a dangerous definition. If legalism is a system in which we achieve salvation, then it is a works-based system. If I have to obey these laws before I can be a participant in God's grace through Christ by faith, it is a works-based salvation, and Paul has spent painful amount of time already saying, no, you were not justified by any laws, but only by faith in Christ. Antinomianism is the opposite of that, and that is, well, if I am saved by grace alone and Christ alone, by faith alone, there's nothing that I need to do. There are no governing behaviors that I need to follow. There are no rules of Scripture that I'm held accountable to. I have a libertine freedom to live life my way, which is contrary to the gospel. And Peter and Paul, as they wrestle through this in the text, Paul will explain true salvation, true salvation, particularly in verse 20, changes everything. And as it changes everything, you don't have free grace to live your life the way you want. You've been purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. He owns you. You're his slave. And guess what? He gets to make the rules. The problem is you have no capacity to keep those rules outside of grace. But it doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to live soberly and righteous in this present age. For those who just want to say, well, I'm in Christ, so it doesn't matter what I do, is a false gospel. For those who say, I'm in Christ because of what I did, is a false gospel. And Paul is spending all of this time looking at these gospels that are not gospels, but another gospel, and trying to get this right. No major figure and mainstream Christian tradition has ever dismissed the value of good works, but they are good works that do not pertain to our salvation, but our sanctification, the cooperation post-salvation of obedience that allows God to shape us into His image. You are accountable for that. What did we look at in our communion celebration? Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. How many of you have been frustrated <laughs> when you're trying to keep those commandments to stay in the grace of God 
when you need to understand you can't keep them but for the grace of God. Without Him, you can do nothing. And I'm weaving together all of those things we've been talking about over the last numbers of weeks. So as we look at this reality, the church in Rome and the Roman Catholic Church today has this tendency to flip these things around. In essence, saying you have to do good works to achieve enough goodness with God that He owes you this grace in Christ by faith. What they've done is they've taken the sanctification governed by the Scriptures, and they've put it before the justification that only comes from God. Follow me? Sanctification comes after. Those requirements to live in obedience to Christ comes after. Prior to salvation, you have no capacity to make those right decisions. So, in that conflict between Rome and the Roman Catholic Church and evangelicalism today, true faith is by imputed righteousness, and sanctification follows justification. So, after Jesus in a divine way invades my life through the forgiveness of sins, He says, you are mine. Keep my commandments. That's not an option. And then He tells us in John chapter 15, you can't do it unless you're engrafted on the vine. I'm the one who does it in you. It's by grace, by grace, by grace. Why? Because if it was only by human effort, not by grace, we'd We'd all start boasting about how good we are, and that is the Pharisees. Look what I've done. I want you to know something. You have a glorious salvation. God has done it all. And even what He's asked of you after justification through sanctification, you can't do outside of His grace. He gives you the ability to obey for His glory. And in some unfathomable kind of way, He rewards us in heaven someday. That just blows my mind. And when that happens, it finally dawns on us. I didn't do any of this. We throw them back to Jesus. It is all. That's the message of the gospel that Paul addresses and that we can get so wrong and backwards and, and, and out of place. Listen, there is no legalism that says, if you do these three things, God owes you grace. And there is no antinomianism that says, once you have grace, you're free. Do whatever you want to do. Those are both perversions of the gospel. R.C. Sproul remarks on this, where legalism fails to distinguish between justification and sanctification, antinomianism against the law, no law, serves severs the vital union between the two, where legalism undermines the gospel by assisting that we must add our obedience to Christ's work in order to be justified, anathema, antinomianism, anti-law, there are no rules, perverts the gospel by subtracting the efficacy of Christ's work and denying that those who receive Christ must also submit to Him as Lord. We are His slaves. He is our master and He makes the rules. And here we are in modern evangelicalism facing the same challenge when it comes to this question on gay marriage and transsexual marriage. The Bible is relevant all, all, 
all of the time. So Paul warns, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, declared righteous, and we were found to be sinners in Christ, then are we servants of sin? If we were claiming justification in Christ and then going back and saying it's because of the law, we know we didn't obey the law. So what you're really doing is trying to make this about you and, and not him. For if I rebuild what I tore down, that, that law, I prove myself to be a sinner. I am transgressing. I'm moving away from the goodness of the gospel and Christ alone by grace alone through faith alone. For though the, through the law, I, or I died to the law so that I might live to God. And there it is right there, that I might live to God. That is that obedience aspect, that, that sanctification process. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's no longer I who gets to set the rules. It's no longer I that get to make and be the final arbiter of right and wrong, things indifferent or, or things of obedience that is, that is outside of my purview. It's not my life. I have been bought with a price. It is the life of Christ who lives in me, and therefore, he, he makes those rules. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I can't do it without him. I can't do it. The righteous live by faith in justification, and the righteous live by faith in sanctification. And we realize, in spite of our responsibility, it is all a work of God. And that's why salvation is to the praise and glory of his name forever and forever and forever. And Luther said, here I stand. Echoing Paul's words, here I stand. And I pray echoing the stance of First Baptist Church, here we stand. God saved me, I did nothing. He is changing me by His grace. He has called me to obedience, and I can't even do that without His help. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he gives you the answer. Jesus Christ, didn't you listen to the gospel? In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, a glorious gospel. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not, I will not, I cannot nullify God's grace. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And I cannot draw and come to that conclusion. It is another gospel. It is in Christ alone. He begins the next chapter by saying, you foolish Galatians, do you understand the price that you're going to pay by preaching another gospel? That not only is a gospel that's accursed, but leads people to destruction. Paul says, this matters. We've got to get this right. What's really interesting so the text this morning says we have to get it right in our doctrine, but we also have to get it right in how we live. Justification, sanctification, both of those things matter. And Paul says, I will not nullify grace, 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 nothing, 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 Praise and honor and glory to Him forever and ever and ever. And God's people said,
Amen. So in the context, we're reminded of the truth of the Scripture. Perhaps one of the most well-known passages on salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one might boast. For, and maybe we could say but, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Justification in Christ alone, sanctification by walking in obedience, glorious is God in bringing it together for the praise and the honor of His glory forever and forever and forever. Amen. It is a glorious gospel with eternal consequences. And to nullify that gospel means we have no hope. But to understand it, we have a hope that nobody can take away from us. And that is glorious. Father, thank you. For the truth of this passage, the relevancy in life. Oh, you know, sometimes, Lord, the reminder that even we get it wrong sometimes. Not intentionally, but we get fuzzy on these matters as Paul makes it clear. Even with the pillars of Jerusalem, we got a little fuzzy. Help us to hear the divine revelation through Paul about the glory of the gospel. May we never nullify the grace of God by believing that somehow we did this. And in the complexities of life, give us the wisdom to be able to delineate between the justifying work of God and the cooperative experience of obedience and sanctification and how they work together to bring glory to your name forever and ever. May it be so, not in just our doctrine, but in how we live, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.